from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 219 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing good. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. I understand that uh, that not only is are we in the season of spring, but we're in the the era of healing right now from all the news cascading down from the Academy Awards. Yeah, <laughs> it's been uh, pretty wild. But, it uh, has. It's entertaining. And, and, yeah, well, we'll talk a little more about the Disney films that won and Searchlight films and all that at the end. But I, I, I just thought there's something odd because, you know, as I mentioned last week, I, I don't watch the Academy Awards. That was Mark Carroll's thing. And I don't relish people, these these celebrities talking down to me and telling me how I should change my life. And then they get in their stretch SUVs and drive by, get driven by their chauffeurs to their mansions and their gated communities that, that are as diverse as a 1950s suburb in the Valley. But, um, but we all have to change how we live. So I, I have no tolerance for them. So I just logged on to, you know, when I woke up in the morning, I logged on and let's say, and I thought, well, let's see, uh, who won best picture and all that. I had to dig and dig and dig just to find the Oscar results. And I thought, what is going on? That should have been the first thing that popped up in my newsfeed. And then I learned. <laughs> what happened and it was a long time before i even found out the results yeah it's yeah. uh it's unfortunate <laughs> to have something overshadow a lot of accomplishments but mm-hmm. uh so that's what happens when you have a 24 hours news cycle i mean you have to you have to pull the juiciest thing and and make sure you focus on that more than more than anything else so yeah it is yeah. what it is yeah, it was pretty stunning, but I'm glad Coda won. I, I saw about half, I think, of the films nominated this year, so I didn't see them all. But I really enjoyed Coda, so yeah. I'm glad it won. It's it's a it's a good movie, good feel good mm-hmm. movie. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there's a lot of humor in it too. So. Yes, yes, there is, <laughs> which is fun. So, well. In this episode, we are returning to our exploration of the history of Epcot Center with a look at the Test Track Pavilion. Now, if you've not listened to episode 213 on the World of Motion Pavilion, you may want to go back and listen to that episode since World of Motion is the predecessor to Test Track. And since Craig worked there, I'm looking forward to hearing his stories of being a cast member. And, you know, before his, um, he writes his tell-all book. Know that I'm sure he'll share some things with <laughs> maybe, us. Maybe a little bit. We'll see. <laughs> so, 
As we mentioned in episode 213, rather than dropping their sponsorship at the end of their original 10-year contract, General Motors decided to renew their sponsorship in one-year intervals. So in an effort to convince GM to enter into another long-term sponsorship, the Imagineers began work on designing a new attraction. Now, early in the design process, GM executives insisted that the new attraction would focus only on cars, and specifically GM cars, rather than the general concept of transportation like World of Motion. So the Imagineers dusted off an old concept for the original World of Motion Pavilion, which was a tour of how vehicles are conceived and designed through the testing of a concept vehicle. Now, guests would have tested the concept vehicles on an outdoor track, but this idea was dropped when it was considered too costly. When Disney presented this idea to General Motors for the new pavilion, they agreed and the World of Motion Pavilion closed on January 2nd, 1996. Several props and vehicles from the World of Motion were placed in other attractions at Walt Disney World, and even at Disneyland and Disney's California Adventure. The chickens went to Goofy's Barnstormer in the Magic Kingdom. Two men from the traffic jam scene were installed in Disneyland's Pirates of the Caribbean. The sea serpent became a prop at Disney's California Adventure in the backlot area. Many other props and vehicles, including the hot air balloon, bull, and centaur, could be seen on the backlot tour at the Disney MGM studio. On February 13, 1996, the GM Preview Center opened in front of the closed World of Motion Pavilion with the announcement that the new attraction would open in May 1997. Guests visiting the preview center would see concept drawings of the new attraction and a video showing a computer-generated simulation of a portion of the attraction. And a large mural painted by French artist Catherine Pfeff depicting a ride vehicle on the outside track with Spaceship Earth in the background was erected to conceal the World of Motion show building during the construction of the new attraction. Like World of Motion, Test Track would be a dark ride, but Test Track would be nothing like World of Motion. Firstly, the walls separating the show scenes in World of Motion were removed, turning the pavilion's second story into one massive cavernous industrial warehouse full of safety tests. As the ride vehicles went through the safety tests, they would ascend and descend sharply, accelerate and brake, rumble over rough terrain, tackle banked turns, and slow for show scenes throughout the ride's interior, before speeding up to 65 miles per hour for a speed test finale. And that required a totally new ride system. Construction and installation of the new pavilion and attraction went pretty much according to schedule. The exterior portion of the new attraction was installed on time in March 1996 without any problems. In October 1996, the interior renovation of the show building had been completed and testing began with a single test vehicle. In February 1997, the show sets had been completed and the next stage was the delivery and testing of 29 ride vehicles. And this is where things would go off track. On February 7th, 1997, just months before the attraction was scheduled to open, it was officially announced. 
Disney Imagineers were at the Chicago Auto Show, where GM announced details of its ambitious new ride, Test Track. In an official press release that day, Disney and GM called their new ride a behind-the-scenes look at the thrill of automotive safety. And then to go on, I'm quoting now, It's not often that consumers get a behind-the-scenes look at how our vehicles are developed and how much effort goes into vehicle testing, said Philip Garascio, um, Vice President and General Manager of Marketing and Advertising for GM's North American Operations. In addition to its high entertainment value, Test Track will provide our guests with a better understanding of GM's commitment to safety, quality, and advanced technology. The work done by GM research engineers has set new standards for the industry and contributed to the substantial reductions in the number of automotive crash fatalities and serious injuries. Test Track is an extension of that safety effort. But Garascio was quick to downplay any insinuation that GM's reinvestment in Epcot and the pavilion was due to the company's financial meltdown a few years earlier. He emphasized that GM would track visitor traffic, collect surveys, and monitor test drives, referrals, and vehicle purchases to evaluate whether or not the multi-year investment would deliver. We didn't do it because it feels good, Garacio said. We did it because it makes good business sense. However, two significant problems became apparent during the testing with multiple vehicles. One problem was with the ride control computer. It could not handle the attraction operation in vehicles as designed. The computer system would crash if only six vehicles were operating on the track at the same time. (laughs) God, that's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I, I, I'm looking forward to hearing hearing more, Craig. <laughs> the ride control computer was designed to accelerate and brake the vehicles to keep them evenly and safely spaced along the track. Precision and control was needed to um, due to the planned 65-mile top speed for each vehicle, and the programming was not working to keep the vehicles properly spaced. Another problem was that the tires on the ride vehicles were failing at a surprising rate. Originally, futuristic tireless sled-like vehicles were part of the design. The sleds were changed to semi-futuristic vehicles designed by Albert Yu to look more like GM's concept designs, and it was decided that the vehicles should not appear to be too futuristic, but needed to look like realistic test vehicles representing all of GM's product lines. Each vehicle has three onboard computers to help control the six brake systems and 250 horsepower electric motor drive. This drive system includes 22 wheels that sandwich the ride track, similar to a slot car, toy track, or the monorail. The strain placed on the track, on the tires, caused them to blow out frequently. Goodyear developed specialized 70 PSI tires for the ride vehicles to solve this problem. Finally, May 1997 came, and the much-anticipated attraction did not open. 
1998, the preview center displays and computer-generated attraction imagery were switched out for actual ride footage from a test vehicle. The problem of being able to operate 29 ride vehicles simultaneously had not been resolved, and the Imagineers were having similar problems with an attraction out at Disneyland called Rocket Rods. Although Disney executives ended up closing down Rocket Rods and putting the problems behind them, they could not do this with Test Track. Disney reportedly scrapped the software that had been developed by a third-party manufacturer, took it over themselves, and built and installed new software to monitor and run the attraction. Park management decided to sell the merchandise created for the May 1997 Chess Track debut at the Preview Center and Future World Shops. Toward the end of 1998, the preview center was closed and removed so the entrance for the test track pavilion could be built. In December 1998, GM executives were given a test ride for their final approval. An Epcot cast member previews began on December 11, 1998. During this time, the Imagineers realized that the attraction didn't have the most efficient loading system. To address this issue... Disney introduced one of the first single-rider lines for any of their attractions. So at an estimated cost of $100 million, one of the most expensive rides ever developed at the time, and almost two years after its expected opening date, Test Track was formally dedicated on March 17, 1999. So Craig, when did you become a cast member on Test Track? I was a cast member in, uh, what was that, fall of 2010, so specifically in August of okay. 2010. So a couple of years before it went through its uh, reimagining, but mm-hmm. uh, it, uh, you know, it definitely later on into the attraction. Now, can you add anything to the background of the story I just shared? Uh, not a ton on the background of the story because that was uh, obviously a lot of that happened before time. Uh, by the time I was there, a lot of the issues with the cars were relatively, uh, relatively figured out. Um, I-, I will say that like, a big problem with test track even uh, you know even still now to this day is that it's very sensitive in terms of breaking down and the cars themselves like because they're running on those computers and the system is so intricate uh they do have a um you know each car is in a special zone at the same time and if it is if it's off then that will cause the entire ride to stop and when rides stop you know the hope is that they they start back up going and you know with something like test track they would be able to go into what was called a cascade so uh, if you're ever on it now or back then where the cars would keep moving but a lot slower that was that was a good system that was built in to make sure that the ride wouldn't have to just completely stop um but uh, for the most part a lot of the bugs that were in it when they were they were trying to get it off the ground you know they they were good by the time that it was opening and and you know years and years later and the 
tire issues, anytime there'd be car issues, you know, they, they had it down to a science where they could pull them right off the track immediately. But uh, I will say it, the, the stark difference for me in terms of the tech used is that I, as I said, I worked in test track in, uh, in fall of 2010. And then in spring of 2011 is when I went and worked at Universal at Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey. You know, a state-of-the-art ride that literally runs on KUKA Robotics traveling around a track, kind of similarly to Test Track in a way, uh, in, in, in the same sense. But the the starkness of difference in terms of the computer technology was just boggling because Forbidden Journey was state-of-the-art. And, I mean, Test Track back then, I, I was just a week away from being scheduled control booth training when uh or tower training as disney would call it when uh when my college program was up and i was forced to leave uh but so i didn't ever get to set in and actually like do the controls of the attraction but you know we would obviously see all our friends and such um cuz the control booth was just above where you dispatched out and you know that's where that's where it still is and with that like you know if you were ever crossing over from one side to the other then you would you would be able to see inside there and i mean we're talking it, this ride was built in the late 90s it was using you know windows technology of that date <laughs> so it's i i'm not sure if they upgraded the system when they upgraded the ride i'm sure they had to in a way but i mean the fact it, it blows my mind <laughs> that this thing ran as well as it did for how old all of the technology was even back when i worked there so now there is a stark contrast between the world of motion pavilion and test track the open wedge that once revealed a spiraling, ascending omnimover track was covered over with large windows, and the entrance now appears to look like a construction zone, even though construction was complete. This is intentional, since the storyline of the attraction is to take guests behind the scenes of vehicle testing, which explains the yellow and black stripes, orange cones, and reflective traffic signs. As you approach Test Track, your ears will perk up to the sound of a high-pitched electrical buzzing-like sound from the elevated metallic roadway that circles the show building. As you pass through the entrance, the open area feels as if it's a museum-like warehouse with antique vehicles, warning stripes, deconstructed cars, exposed wiring and ducts, lighting rigs, and real crash test dummies. The intent is to introduce guests to the extreme conditions vehicles are put through years before they are delivered to the showroom floor. The portico from World of Motion was walled in to house the winding test track queue. As you pass through the queue, you'll see spinning lights, hear squealing tires, and watch videos depicting some of the extensive tests GM uses to ensure your safety when driving a GM vehicle. The queue takes you into the briefing room, which is lined with framed photos of GM's testing facilities worldwide, including the Milford Proving Grounds that inspired the Imagineers and Test Track, all designed to introduce us to the concept of a test facility and the attraction backstory. 
Overhead monitors provide a live feed of the track's control center, and we meet Bill McKim, who reviews the day's testing schedule with us. We'll start with an accelerated hill climb, tackle German and Belgian blocks to simulate rough roads to test suspension integrity, experience the sensation of having our brakes lock up, and then see the wonders of ABS, anti-lock braking systems, environmental tests handling runs with hairpin terms, and a high-speed loop should finish us off. Bill continues by saying, Now, if this routine seems a bit extreme, you're exactly right. But that's what a test track is all about. The cars you drive at home are made up of over 15,000 parts, and every one of them has to pass the test under extreme conditions before we ever let it off that test track and onto the road. Now you leave the briefing room and enter into the ride's dispatch center, where a line of self-driving cars arrives. And each vehicle is wrapped in yellow and white and dotted with indicator lights, warning stripes, checkers, and graphics, since they are test vehicles. Six guests fit inside each car, three in the front and three in the back, with a small in-cab video monitor for each row. And after buckling your standard seatbelts, the car buzzes to life and advances forward to a seatbelt check. And ahead of us, we can see an asphalt hill. After the seatbelt check, we pass under a reflective green highway sign, which is the signal for our first test, Hill Climb, which is in the former World of Motion Center Core. This is a 26.8% grade surrounded in reflectors and metal barriers that leads to the testing ground in a newly built third level of the show building, where other cars are also undergoing safety tests. Our vehicle makes a sharp turn to the right and we see a downgrade and a path lit by industrial spotlights. The rough road test sends our vehicles down the small hill as it bounces over blocks placed in the road to test the suspension system. We then turn a corner and come upon a straightaway lined by glowing orange traffic cones. Bill appears on a monitor attached to a traffic light next to another green reflector light. Uh, a sign, I should say, that reads brake test. And Bill tells us, okay, I'm going to take you right up to the cones, hit the brakes, and see if I can steer you through. Hold on. And then our vehicle speeds up and races toward the cones. Braking now, we're warned. The car veers to the left, feeling as if it's out of control. The traffic cones were designed to pop back up after each vehicle ran over them. But as time went on, this effect rarely worked. I don't think I remember that working since, I mean, it would have been when, probably in like 2000 or 2003 is when I remembered it most, (laughs) but it it never worked when I was working there. But this is, this is one of my favorite uh, areas because there was, uh, there's four stairwells in test track that can kind of take you up to the different areas and parts of the attraction. Four. I'm, I'm pretty sure on that. It might be three, but again, it's. I can't find my notes of everything that I have <laughs> from when I worked there. I know I still have them somewhere, but I'm trying to do a lot of this off memory. And uh, there, one of the stairwells would pop out right at the corner after this first breaking section, and you could technically go up there without actually like locking out. So locking out is when you are. Uh, 
you know, when you're going to enter in the ride path area, technically they want you to turn the power off to the ride and then put a master lock on there. And so that way, you know, you can't step into the ride track and be zapped and something Mm -hmm. bad goes wrong. You know, usually it's in the morning when you're doing testing and walking the track. And then, uh, then, you know, if there was an evacuation, that's another time you would lock out and test track. I hope they still don't do it because it's extremely safe. Uh, we were allowed to just grab locks off the wall. And then as soon as we did it, it was signifying that people are somewhere around the ride track, but it was still running. Um, incredibly dangerous. Like I cannot state this <laughs> enough. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's absurd that it was ever allowed to happen. And I really hope it still doesn't happen, but, uh, we would, we would come up the stairwell that popped right there and just kind of sit and watch cars and, uh, to, to kind of give like, it, an idea of that area too. It's if you haven't really ever paid attention, cause it's always kind of just a dark corner there. But, uh, if you, if you're doing that first brake test, cause you still do it now with this form of test track. If you look up above, you'll see the glass on the inside. And that's from what's now the Chevy lounge, but back then was the GM lounge. And so if you're an employee, you could sit up there and look down into the ride track. And so that's kind of where that whole section is. So it's, uh, it was, it was one of my favorite things to do. Didn't do it a lot, but it was always memorable when you just kind of watch because people are, you know, they're hitting the gas and coming up to that part where those cars are going out of control. And then to see people standing there is just like it always caught people off guard. (laughs) (laughs) Our vehicle turns another corner and encounters another alley of cones. Bill is back with the instructions. Okay, let's try that again, but this time with the anti-lock brakes. The car jolts forward again, accelerating straight towards an oncoming car. As if we're playing a game of chicken, our vehicle brakes and turns at the last moment, but it's completely controlled. A happy Bill says that's how it ought to be. Two monitors ahead review our brake test. You see how anti-lock brakes help keep control of the vehicle while braking? However, these monitors rarely worked as designed. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> as we continue along, a green light gives us a go signal as we pass into a corrugated metal shed with its own green sign, Environmental Chambers. Let's demonstrate some extreme test conditions, says Bill. In the heat chamber, rows of incandescent red glowing lamps power up, immediately baking riders well past 100 degrees, so it says. Happily, we can now cool off in the cold chamber that is caked with layers of frost and frigid mist is wafting down. This chamber is supposed to be zero degrees, putting our vehicles and us through a hundred degree temperature change. The third environmental chamber glows green as robotic arms are activated. Did you remember to turn off those robots, exclaims Bill? This is the corrosive chamber, and the robotic arm sprays us with a neon yellow mist whilst an acidic chemical scent is pumped into the chamber. Yeah, in the environmental chambers are one of the places where for a while you could find a a hidden Craig because as we (laughs) would, uh, you know, as people were getting signed off for the attraction and the uh, it was it was either in the cold chamber or in 
right as you start the corrosive chamber, I think it was the cold one though. Um, there was like a, a dry erase board and I believe there was always like a hidden Mickey that would be drawn on there, but then we would also write in our initials and it, it was one of those things like the, the dry erase marker was just sitting there so anyone could go through and, and do whatever they wanted with it. And no one really ever, ever really changed it. Just, just always small additions to it. So that was one of the places I know my, my initials definitely were. And I wish I, maybe there's a video out there from someone that, uh, that captured the board while my, my initials were on it, but it was, it was there at one point. Yeah. Well, Listeners, you have to go back into your archives, your personal archives videos for this attraction and yeah. see if you have have Craig's initials captured there. Exactly. As we exit the environmental chamber, we are cleared for trial course A. Our vehicle takes a left at a fork in the road and enters a forest of flat cutout trees. This is the ride and handling test where we'll test our vehicle's ability to handle hairpin turns. We hear increasing speed, 10%, and the car easily takes the first switchback, gliding along the roadway as reflective arrows guide us. 20%, we race up the, we race up the incline straightaway, then turn sharply again. 30%, and we are asked, are you seeing an increase in lateral forces? And right around the beginning of this section where the forest starts and around the 10% speed, uh, this was another when, another place where one of the stairwells were. And, uh, they, this one had a wall that went straight up and it was just covered in black curtains. But if you pulled back the black curtains, there was bricks underneath and we were always told and that was the lore was that uh this was one of the remaining things that was still around from world of motion one of the uh one of the sets they used had the brick facade on it but i've never been able to prove that just because where that would have been on the world of motion ride path it wouldn't have made sense it was two different like time it would like i know where the bricks were from watching the world of motion videos and it wasn't in necessarily the right place so kind of who knows if it's true uh maybe they still tell people that with the current form of test track now but that was at least one of the things that was pointed out that i can never quite get to the the actual Mm. truth on it interesting Now, right before the dip sign, our vehicle goes down a drop and makes a quick left into a dark tunnel. As the headlights power down, we're left in total darkness. We see a light at the end of the tunnel, but then to our left, we hear a honking horn and see flashing headlights, which sends our vehicle skidding a bit to the right before regaining its traction and heading into a clearing. And uh, this was another place where... And not to just make this all about stairwells, this was where there was another <laughs> one, though, that we could pop up in. And so it was obnoxious, obviously, because the flashing light, like it just it was super annoying. But it was also fun to just stand there and watch people because here it was too dark for them to see us. Uh, but you could see their reaction every time that the the lights came on. And, you know, in terms of a ride photo where they decided to place it. It's pretty good for this attraction, but I think right there would have been the best spot for it. It just, the looks on people's faces would have been priceless. Yeah, that's great. 
A crashed car is on our right, and we see a new sign warning us of our next trial. Barrier test area. We then come upon banks of spotlights illuminating a car smashed up against a wall, its front end crumbled and its airbags deployed. An announcement is heard over the PA system warning all personnel that a barrier test is in progress. Our vehicle turns another corner and we see a concrete barrier straight ahead, marked with warning symbols. The rest of the room lights up and we see what's left of several vehicles that did not pass the barrier test. Our vehicle slowly moves forward, then accelerates suddenly into a racing full speed ahead toward the wall. More lights come on as we hurtle towards the wall. This is in the area where the wheel is created in the world of motion. So I don't know if that helps identify then where that brick wall set is. Yeah, I don't think I don't think the brick wall was part of it. I mean, it had to okay. be, but I don't. Maybe it wasn't visible, and that was part of it. But I. One day, one day, I'll find someone who actually knows more about that building and was there all the way back to World of Motion. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, they'd have to be on the older side, but there's got to be someone that still yeah. is there. I should have asked while I worked there, but I never wanted to, like, poke around. I just trusted my trainer, <laughs> thought that they wouldn't lie to me. <laughs> <laughs> right when it appears we are going to collide with the wall, it opens down the middle and slides out of the way. Blinding light bursts from ahead, and we're outside. We are now at the speed test. Our vehicle races down a drop, then heads onto a straightaway before launching forward. The vehicle then veers to the right and banks before entering a massive acceleration curve. Look down, and you can see the cast member parking lot. Our vehicle speed continues to increase around the loop before lining back up with the initial straightaway. Zooming back toward the pavilion and passing under a speed reader that indicates our top speed, 65 miles per hour. An extreme bank now sends the car curving around the circular pavilion's front end and back over the ride entrance. This exterior portion of the attraction has 2,600 feet of track and rises from 12 to 24 feet and originally had a planned top speed of 95 miles per hour. The top speed was reduced to 65 miles per hour to meet legal maximum state speeds and to reduce the angle of the bank turn. The Imagineers said banked corners greater than 47 degrees would make guests uncomfortable if the vehicle stopped on the outside curve. Guests having to be evacuated from this outer loop after a long wait would become a common occurrence. Merchandise support would have to provide guests stuck out in the rain with dry clothing when the attraction broke down. Yeah. And I mean, not not just that water if they were stuck out there too long. And on top of that, too, the cars that stopped when they were on that outside portion, that specific portion going top speed, uh, they slowed down from 65 to zero in a very quick amount of time. And I've never been through it, but I can only imagine how painful it was. Like, I don't, (laughs) I don't think it was like an instant stop because that just would be, he almost need, basically would need, um, you know, airbags to help with the (laughs) the pain of that. But it was definitely, it was not, it, it, it was never pleasant from what I heard from from people that uh, had to experience it. It wasn't the greatest thing. 
I'll bet. It's lucky nobody like banged their heads <laughs> or anything. We then return to the back of the pavilion and re-enter the test facility for our thermal imaging scan. On the overhead screen, we see the vehicle's infrared scan. This will later become an on-ride photo. The final descent takes us back to the loading area, and Bill bids us goodbye. All right, that completes our test schedule. Thanks for being such a great test crew. Come back and ride any time. We then walk into the pavilion's post-show area, a smaller and updated version of the World Emotion Trans Center, which includes an assembly demonstration showing each piece of our car and how they're assembled. A General Motors showroom showcasing the cars of tomorrow. And finally, a showroom where you can purchase a new GM vehicle as a souvenir, the ultimate souvenir. In, in the gift shop called Inside Track, you can purchase smaller models of GM vehicles, including a test track slot car set and GM branded merchandise. For many guests, the most popular mini attraction in the area were the small virtual simulators called Dream Chasers. These were arched single person vehicles with small video displays that ran an elaborate commercial for GM vehicles and services. The simulators twisted side to side in sync with the video. These would later be replaced with interactive exhibits featuring GM's eco-friendly drive system. So that's our that's our ride on test track. So Craig, during this this era of test track, what did you do as a cast member? Uh, I mean everything. So you know that's the great part about working at uh, you know working in attractions is things don't kind of stay boring like they would in in other uh, locations around Walt Disney World you know it's if you're a housekeeper you're doing the same thing over and over again you if you're if you're working in a gift shop obviously you're kind of just dealing with the merchandise over and over uh, but attractions one of those jobs that definitely was not monotonous because you were constantly moving around um however in my time there i feel like i always got stuck out at greeter um in the the front entrance as you're approaching uh because that was you know that's just you had three people out there at any given time you know with the with the fast pass return and with um with just the regular entrance and so it normally would just be two but you could also have someone there for single ride or two double checking with people like hey you don't want to you don't want to you know, split up, do you? So don't go in this line. Don't do that. Um, or just extra positions out there. Uh, a fun, fun place to be. I always joke with people that were drinking, um, trying to like chug their drinks to go inside, be like, Oh, whoa, 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 you can't, can't do that. Then, then you'll be drunk driving in there. And <laughs> almost all the time they would be serious and be like, seriously, I, I need to throw this away now. I'm like, no, just drink your beer inside the line. It's a 45 minute wait. You're going to want it. Uh, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> so like that was the outside. And then, uh, you know, you'd be at the, you'd be at the merge point where fast pass and regular line would meet up together and send people into the rooms. And then after that grouper where you were placing people into, into their ride vehicles and, you know, that's where you find out that test track is an awful ride to work at because uh, they're 
six seats total, three in the front, three in the back. And as you mentioned with the single rider line, it's a savior because it helps fill seats. But it's so difficult with that ride in particular because so many people come as a family of four. And it's like, well, you're going to do two in the front, two in the back. Well, we want to all four be in the front. It's like, well, I can't, I can't make seats that don't mm-hmm. exist. So two in the front, two in the back. Okay. Uh, can I, we actually do, uh, can we do three in the front, one in the back? Yeah, sure. I don't care. Just get on, get on the car. It's, it's going to pull away without you if you don't go. Uh, but single riders were always there to help out. Um, one of my favorite positions to work at, um, was actually it's after you know you have the people who are also on the unload unload side were helping to watch and load people on and get people off uh but up above before you go through um you know before you get into the ride you have the seatbelt check and that was always my favorite position to do because you're like isolated by yourself and it's still a part of the ride now and so it was just kind of that like it was that quiet place where you still got to, you got to talk to a lot of people and it was still really busy. Uh, but you know, at the same time too, you were, you were just isolated. And then that was, that was it. It's, we had a pretty big staff at test track, but they're, you know, overall in the grand scheme of things, uh, not, it doesn't take a lot of people to, to do that attraction to, to make it all, all work. But, it was. Uh, I, I. I think. I think my favorite definitely was doing the seatbelt checks. Always the only time because that was a fun place to be because if they were bringing in like VIPs uh, to ride the attraction, a lot of times they would board up there. Uh, that's also the place where if you needed more assistance getting on, if you you know if it was a family who needed to transfer someone from a wheelchair, they would go up there because there'd be time to sit and pause and without needing the ride to constantly move. Um, but that's also, like I said, where VIPs would get on to. So you kind of get a little bit closer look at some of the celebrities going through. Sometimes they'd want to go through the pre-show and get on that way too. But Regardless, it was a place where you, you know, you definitely, you were stopping them for a second and making sure their seatbelts were checked. So you'd actually get to, to see them a little bit closer up. But I like that. I liked grouping. Um, the, the fast paced of grouping really prepared me for Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey later, which uh, if you've never done that attraction, it never stops moving. It is mm-hmm. just constantly moving on a moving walkway and it is, it is fast paced. So, uh, test track being such a popular attraction and needing to move so quickly really prepared me for that. But I loved everything. I think my, uh, my, Favorite position that wasn't a true position was at the end of the night, if you closed, um, cause, you know, obviously you have openers, closers, people kind of in the middle. Uh, if you were a closer, then you had a couple different positions that would go outside and kind of like block off guests from from walking towards the building after it was closed. And so my favorite one was over by the Odyssey 
because you'd have the perfect view of the illuminations. So I would, I would volunteer for that every single chance I, I could get. Um, and usually it would happen if I was out at greeter, they, once you put the rope across, you don't need someone there. So move further out. But I, I, I watched illuminations so many times in a couple months just because I always wanted to go out there. And, you know, it was also, I only had the chance to open a couple times, but that was always exciting too, because, you know, it's, Unlike uh, unlike the universal attractions, which I came to know and love very deeply, uh, at least Test Track, it was it was the cast member's job to turn on the attraction every morning. At, at Universal, the techs turned on the attractions and then handed over to the uh, handed over to operations. But at Test Track, you know, we walked we walked the track and we turned on each zone section by section waking the ride up in order to get it ready for guests so uh first cast members would get into test track at six o'clock for the nine o'clock opening so it was it was a process getting it going and then you know doing ride throughs to make sure that enough of the effects were working so that way it could open properly but as as you pointed out there was a lot of effects that really didn't work towards the end so it was kind of just like hey it's either going to open or it doesn't so Let's accept the fact that not a lot works with it anymore. Uh, but it was, you know, it was, it was a good time. I, I can't, I can't say that I didn't enjoy working there. I, I loved it. Again, I didn't get to finish my college program because of housing issues that I had, uh, nothing to do with my time at Disney. I, it, as soon as I moved back to Florida, I literally wanted to rush right back to Disney and try to work at this attraction again. Uh, I, I loved my time there. It was, it was a fun ride to work. But you know what? I wouldn't be here right now if I was still a test track. So look at the positives. Yeah. Well, I th- that's wonderful that you enjoyed working at that attraction so much. Yeah. So, I mean, that is great. I'm glad to hear that. So, and who knows? Maybe Carol and I and the kids walked past you. Didn't even know it. it there's a chance. in the day. Yeah. No, I... I, uh, I I know, you know, I wasn't there for a super long time, but mm-hmm. I I was able to find a video or two of me in it way back in the day, um, mm-hmm. you know, just like kind of way off in the background, never in a good, good place, because that's what I used to do when I was bored back in, you know, 2011, 2012, before I was, I was working for the Diz, I would have time to just search on YouTube. And like back then, it was... A lot easier to find it because it was only a year or two earlier. Not like now where if I tried to really search on that, I have to go back to videos shot during a very specific time period. And, you know, back in those days too, it's, there's still people shooting on actual, on little uh, DV tapes. So not Mm -hmm. only did they have to shoot the footage, then it's not like pull out a memory card and plug it into the computer and upload it. You'd have to capture the footage and then do something with it and upload it. So it's a a video you shot in October of 2011. You might not have done anything with it until the following year. So it's one, one, one day when I actually take a real vacation and then I don't do anything but sit on my phone. I'll go back and look at old test track videos, see if I can find more of me out there. No, that's great. Well, you'll have to share them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Test Track proved that there was a place for thrill rides in Epcot, and this was the beginning of a redesign for Future World. Journey into Imagination would be reimagined, some say into a 
let's shall we say, less fulfilling experience. Uh, horizons would give way to mission space, and the land would be renovated to include Soren. General Motors' sponsorship agreement for Test Track came to an end in 2009, and once again they continued their sponsorship on a year-to-year basis. In 2012, it was announced that Test Track would close on April 15, 2012, and a new version would open in the fall. A musical show called Test Track All-Stars was performed in a closed main entrance until December 4, 2012. I don't think I ever saw this show. So I'm not familiar with it. I'm not either, to be honest with you. The reimagined test track opened to guests during a soft opening on December 3rd, 2012. And the grand reopening ceremony was held on December 6th, 2012. The new test track exterior doesn't look all that different. The most notable change is that the sign now reads, Test Track Presented by Chevrolet, to indicate that GM has selected its Chevrolet brand as the sponsor. However, when you enter the pavilion, you see that everything has changed. The construction zone motif theme has been replaced with a sleek showroom where the newest GM Chevrolet prototype vehicles are on display. The Chevrolet NV, and that's E-N-V, is a two-seat urban electric concept car developed through a joint agreement by GM and Segway. The Chevrolet True, spelled T-R-U, looks more futuristic with its low, sleek, aerodynamic lines. As we walk through the queue, we see dimensional screens showcasing new designs and pass a projection-mapped hybrid of the future, watching as it begins with simple lines before expanding into a three-dimensional design as we listen to Chevrolet's design team explain how they develop vehicle concepts to power the future. Next, we enter into the Chevrolet Design Studio, a bright electronic laboratory where a cast member assigns us to an oversized touchscreen design station. All designs begin with a line, we are told. With a swipe of our finger, we will create the silhouette of a custom car. We are able to adjust and sculpt the car's streamlined shape, then adjust the engine, tires, width, and length of the vehicle. Live readouts tell us how our design handles in four key areas that matter to Chevrolet and to consumers. Capability, efficiency, responsiveness, and power. We are able to make changes to balance our car in these four areas. And with the tap of um, your magic band or RFID-enabled park ticket, although in the early days you were given a, like a, look like a hotel room key that was RFID-enabled. Um, you, your design is assigned to follow you um, throughout the experience. Just as before, your ride vehicles pull into the loading area and park for boarding. But boarding is a new experience. First, you'll tap your magic band or RFID-enabled park ticket again before entering your vehicle, which assigns your custom design to the vehicle. Secondly, you may notice that the yellow and black warning stripes to wrap the car have been replaced with a glowing blue grid. The new backstory of the attraction is that we are now car designers using science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics to construct a vehicle for testing. The vehicle we're sitting in is a SIM car representing our design on the digital SIM track. 
Our custom design concept will be put through for tests of capability, efficiency, responsiveness, and power. As we leave the boarding area, we ascend into the glowing, pulsing digital landscape of the SimTrack, and fans of the Tron films will immediately see some inspiration as we track our vehicle's progress through the four tests on stylized laser grids. Large screens line the left and right of the hill, displaying a variety of futuristic graphics against a black background. At the top of the hill, two large World Emotion logos can be seen on either side of the vehicle. At the top of the hill, we pass under a pulsing yellow digital arch that represents capability. This test is, is designed to test our vehicle's reactions to challenging weather and surface conditions as computer landscapes digitize to change the course, gridded sheets of rainfall, and two-dimensional program obstacles dot the landscape along the yellow neon sign. As our vehicle slows, a large model city can be seen to the left of the vehicle. The city is a homage to Walt Disney's Progress City concept and is overlaid with futuristic graphics. After completing this test, a large monitor displays how your vehicle design scored in capability compared to the scores of other riders. Next on the course is a green arch, introducing the efficiency test that takes you through three chambers that scan your vehicle and test its aerodynamic qualities and engine efficiency. Once again, your vehicle design results are displayed in comparison with other riders. The blue arch signals the start of a responsive test. Like the previous versions of Test Track, your vehicle moves through the tight and increasingly quick switchbacks of a hillside. But rather than flat green trees, there are trees created with blue lasers, and the industrial-style road is now a glowing neon road. We still have that close encounter with a semi-truck, but it's now outlined with glowing lasers. Finally, the three emblems for capability, efficiency, and responsiveness light up to indicate the tests have been completed. The final test is power, designated by purple arches. As lights pulse and energize, our vehicle revs up and speeds toward a TT logo, the test track logo, which opens at the last moment, exposing the same high-speed outdoor course and ultimately our vehicle's power test results before returning to the loading area. So, Craig, did you work in this, the current version of test track? No, I didn't, just because my, my time was only from uh, August 2010 to October 2010. But oh, okay. I, was at, um, I was at the grand opening of the reimagined one, because that was all part of the, the press event where New Fantasyland opened up and the, the fabled uh, dragon, New Fantasyland oh, dragon right. flew. I remember was, that. Yeah, it was a that was an exciting event because it was first night was Fantasyland and then the next night was Test Track and then the final morning was Splitsville I want to say. So it was like three three massive things right in a row. And like granted the uh, uh New Fantasyland had been under like, you know, cast member previews and I think annual pass previews too. So that it wasn't that much and same thing went for Test Track, but it was still like I mean it was my first my first press event that I was ever at and so it was one to remember and I can I can remember, you know, it it was like 
one of those moments where I felt like I was never going to be able to uh, be at another one again. So I was like, they were giving out these plastic blinky martini cups, and mm-hmm. I just kept piling them into my backpack. <laughs> like using that to stock like my glassware at home and eating more food than than I knew what to do with and uh it was it is a good time rode the ride a couple times that night too and uh you know I I can say I I maybe I, I dislike this version of test track so much I know at its core the ride is still the same but the the test facility the you know that black and and yellow and gray and just that that kind of dated crash test dummies look of the the 90s it just that had so much heart to me than this one does this is sleek and it's definitely flashy but it's to me it lost a lot of the soul of the ride Mm -hmm. when it switched over so i you know the old version of test track i probably i would ride it you know, I, I worked five days a week, and I would probably ride it four or five times each shift. So, I, I've ridden easily can say I've ridden it hundreds of times. The original version of Test Track. This one, I maybe have only done it like ten times. I just don't care for it. Yeah, I I think I found the the previous version of Test Track more interesting. I think I learned more. Yeah. Um, than I do in this one, in the current version, but I, um, I, I guess they just felt it was getting dated and they needed something to look more flashy and futuristic and slick and all that to, you know, meet the new, the, the new decade that was coming up and we were in the 21st century. And I guess they wanted something that better reflected that. I, I know a lot of what people they came up with. Yeah, I know a lot mm-hmm. of people that love this one and mm-hmm. they think this is far superior. Not even not even going off like, oh, the Tron inspiration to it and such. It's just that I, I think I think the entire design your own car thing is a complete gimmick and just just wastes extra time instead of really doing a, a proper pre show and other people I know say, well that's that's what makes this ride so great. Mm-hmm. So I, I fully admit I am I am definitely not in the popular opinion on this one, but that the old attraction, I even if I didn't work on it, I remember I remember in probably two thousand ish era when we when I finally was like old enough to carry the video camera when we came to parks, uh, Test Track was the first ride that I ever recorded with the camera, and so like I, I feel like I just had this attachment to this ride that that ran really deep for a long time. So I miss the old version. Yeah, yeah, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if someday with the opening of Tron you know, the Tron yeah. coaster, that they somehow linked this to Tron. Because it <laughs> just looks so, especially because they have Guardians of the Galaxy. That's just going to be, you know, a couple of pavilions over. And um, it, it just isn't surprising as they put more IP into the park, that they somehow rethemed this or reconnect it to Tron. I, I think more than anything, I, I know it hasn't been a lot of years since 2012, so it's kind of hard to make uh, pretty rash decisions with it. But 
you know, we're obviously we've gotten Ratatouille in. We're getting Guardians of the Galaxy soon, and I, I would like at some point in time. I, I know there's a lot that still needs fixed at Epcot, but I would like for uh, for Test Track to get looked at in the future in terms of a replacement. <laughs> I think I think the entire concept is kind of it. it, it past its time it, it's ready for a change even more so than mission space which i'm also not a huge fan of but at least i i feel like they could still update that like they did the last time uh you know whatever five years back where they changed up the ride video for like the the less intense one there there's still things that can be done with mission space in the meantime but test track i i feel like i i feel like they just need a new concept in there overall yeah, yeah. Well, you know, now that they own the Orville, you know, I, I figure there'll be an Orville overlay in Mission Space. If they wanted to do that, <laughs> I'd be all for it. I, you know, I've, I've been saying for years there's not enough Seth MacFarlane in uh, in Disney parks. So if, if they think the Orville is family friendly enough for it, then go ahead. <laughs> Well, you know, there may be debate over which pavilion best represented Walt Disney's vision for the original Epcot and Progress City as captured by Epcot, the theme park, you know, World of Motion or Test Track, you know, but it may be argued that both attractions are true to the Buddy Baker and Xavier Atencio theme song. It's fun to be free. But now it's time for this week in Disney history. Okay, it's. I think it's my turn this week to go first. Uh, I thought it was my turn, but oh, if you okay. Want to go, no, you go can. ahead. No, 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 no. You go ahead. I oh. I never remember from one week to the next. So. <laughs> That's perfect. Well, I'm I'm happy to go this time around. Uh, okay. I am. I'm choosing an event that happened on April seventh of two thousand six, and this is uh this is a big one for me, and I I feel like I had to bring it up as soon as I, I saw that it, uh, this attraction celebrated its grand opening on this day. And of course, that attraction is Expedition Everest, the legend of the Forbidden Mountain. <laughs> uh, the incredible, incredible roller coaster at Expedition, at, geez, at Expedition Everest, at Animal Kingdom. <laughs> uh, I, I just love this coaster. Even with Disco Yeti aside, I, I just think it is, it is so fun for a Disney park. It is the perfect amount of thrills without overdoing it. You know, it's when this opened, I was, uh, hold, we'll decide 19 at that time. So I, I was, you know, at that point in time, I had ridden a lot more intense roller coasters, but I came to Disney with my family still to enjoy, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the fun elements that, that come in with, with Disney and, and the classic stories you grew up with. But then adding something in like Expedition Everest, it just, it added that, that level back into it of, okay, well, you know what? It, there, we are stepping into thrills a little bit in this and not nearly as much as other theme parks in, in central Florida, but just, just the right amount of intensity. And, you know, to have the, the portion where you, you stop at the broken tracks and you can be looking out or be surprised by the fact you're going to go backwards. There's just, mm -hmm. there's so, 
so many cool elements uh, to this attraction, even down to the incredible uh, detailed rock work that went into it. And obviously the structure of it is just, it's fascinating uh, of how it was all built and put together. And more than anything, you know, it, it, it inspired me to learn more about Mount Everest and the Himalayas and, and mountain climbing. And I, I know it's going to be expensive as all get out, but my, my, one of my bucket list goals is I want, I want to pay the money to do a climb just to the Everest base camp. You know, it's, it's, wow. most, it's mostly just a walking trail, uh, but mm-hmm. it's long and takes like two weeks to get there and is quite expensive with permits and travel to, <laughs> to get there. Uh, but I, I know I will never be in physical condition to climb Mount Everest. I don't want to die on Mount Everest, uh, <laughs> but I would love to be able to at least go to base camp and, you know, be, be close to it and be in the Himalayas. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated with it all. So, that's why I had to choose it. Yeah, I think that's great. That That is an amazing attraction. I don't go on it that often because I get a little dizzy on it. Yeah. But I, I remember the first time we went on it and we were sort of in the sort of middle to the back. And oh my gosh, and you go backwards up that steep incline. I was sure I was going to fall out of the train. <laughs> I mean... Because I was shocked. I was so surprised. And the Yeti was working, you know, and all that. And we were in the park, I think, on one of the last days the Yeti worked. Because um, Joe Rody was in the park oh, that wow. day. And they got him revved up and working um, for that day. And then, apparent, from what I've been told, apparently it never worked again yeah. after that. And it's a shame that they can't or won't... Um, fix it because it really was an amazing figure when it when it worked yeah i i believe i have seen it once working and even then i'm not sure if it was just i thought it was working and and can't really remember enough but i do believe i saw it working one time and i or at least it was lit better so it seemed like it was working but it's i'm I'm still so impressed with it to this day yeah, when they do the flashing, I just don't see it. No, I just realize it's there, but why are you doing this flashing? You know, it it just it, it obscures it more than anything else. So, um, which is unfortunate. Hopefully someday, but you know, I've been told that you know it's not like the Yeti not working is decreasing attendance on the attraction. No, it doesn't need to work to be perfectly fair with it it's people are riding the attraction for it itself not for the yeti Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's just sad that something that was so amazing is just not working Mm -hmm. properly agree well mine takes place a day after but a few years earlier than yours april 8 1973 disneyland's main street opera house debuts the walt disney story presented by Gulf Oil, and Walt Disney's wife, Lillian, 
was in attendance for this grand opening. And this is, this is a 23 minute film on Walt Disney's life and it featured um, rare footage. It's narrated by Walt himself from interview recordings and also on display were photographs from the family archives. There was all kinds of memorabilia. There were national and international awards that had been presented to Walt over his lifetime. And um, this uh, replaced great moments with Mr. Lincoln, which uh, a lot of people were upset by that. And later on, the shows were combined into a single attraction with, um, with the, the pre-show was the story, the, the Walt Disney story. And then Mr. Lincoln returned. Mm-hmm. And so the Walt Disney story is officially dedicated on May 6th. And I just thought this was nice because, um, and we used to have the, 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 um, office of Walt Disney there, one of his offices, which was, um, is now, you know, been restored to, it was in Florida, one man's dream for a while. And that, then it was returned to the studio to, for when his office was, um, you know, reinstated there and, and redone, reinstalled. So, um, I just think this, I just thought this is noteworthy because, you know, out the Disney MGM studios, they have that wonderful one man's dream, Display, and we really don't have anything out in Disneyland that complements that. We have things here and there, like you know that small pre-show area uh, in the Main Street Opera House mm-hmm. for Mister Lincoln, and you know there are historic photos in the Carthay Circle restaurant over at Disney California Adventure, and but. There could be so much more, and there really should be, because you know we always like to say that's Walt's Park, yeah. and I, 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 it's too bad they don't. They did work with um, with the Walt Disney Family Museum up in San Francisco to do a display, a small display in the Carthay Circle Theater that they would switch out periodically. Um, since the pandemic, I don't know if they're still doing that. But they would loan them things from the museum, and then um, it would—I don't know—maybe a year, a year, every couple times a year, they would switch it out the display. But I don't know. There needs to be something a little grander on the life of Walt Disney. Yeah, there. Uh, you know, especially because not an insult to one man's dream. Because I, I love that we still have it in Hollywood Studios, and I hope it never goes away i'm happy with it being updated but the you know the first half where you're walking through walt's life is still so meaningful but a lot of that was punctuated by rounding the corner and seeing the office and you know feeling feeling like you were continuing his life story and i i just don't get that same feeling anymore it's like To me, it ends as soon as you end that first stretch. And once you get to Disneyland opening, it's this is Walt Disney's life up to this point. And now this is Disney parks as you experience them back then and today and goes through that and then ends right before the one man's dream movie of, okay, now here's a here's some of the uh, the latest props from some of the movies that are coming out and that's yeah. it it's not yeah. it's not cohesive so i would rather i would rather that they uh 
they, you know, take that first half of the attraction and move it out to Disneyland and build something that's a bit more proper of a tribute to Walt and, and really, really do it that way. And then, you know, it, maybe update the movie a little bit. Julie Andrews is still with us. Who knows? I, I'm not trying to jinx her in this way. I believe she's still in pretty good health, but you know, get, get her to do another voiceover on it. We're coming up to the, 70th anniversary of Disneyland soon here. Uh, you know, it's a good time perhaps to, to maybe do something like that and, and get a refresh on that video, make it look a little bit nicer and mm-hmm. have it play out in Disneyland. Yeah. Or, you know, keep the, keep one man stream there because I think it's important to educate people on, you know, on Walt um, because he was so much identified with Disneyland, I, I don't. I think we need to remind people. You know, he did have something to do with Florida, and but maybe continue his story. And you know, if the archives wants to have a museum out there, I don't know. Maybe that Star Wars area there. Maybe make that into an archives museum. Yeah. You know, because that is so far removed from Star Tours and Galaxy's Edge. Maybe make that into an archives exhibit that rotates. And you can have Star Wars stuff in there, too, uh, yeah. as part of the archives exhibit. And move some of that stuff out from that end of one man's dream into the archives exhibit. And then you can continue Walt Disney's story and all that. And maybe focus a little more on what he really wanted Epcot to be. And, and you know, and his, you know, his... um you know, his, his sort of plans for the Florida project and develop that a little more so that people see the connection yeah. with Walt in Florida. That's what I would do. And then have something similar, you know, again, maybe partnering with the Walt Disney Family Museum, because apparently they have warehouses of stuff and, um, you know, and just have have a exhibit at Disneyland that they they rotate things in and out as time goes on and you know, maybe even the, even the studio itself could. Do they have a bunch of stuff too in the archives? Maybe they could even do that, bring some of Walt's stuff, and put it on display. Yeah, in there. I always think they don't do enough with the Main Street Opera House area in there. I mean, they do it. You know, like when in, when an attraction has a um a, a an anniversary, or they want to show props from a film. They use it for that. And I'd like to see it focus a little more on Walt. Yeah, I agree. You know, in there. So, good moments in Walt Disney history this week. Well, we wanted to remind folks again about DizCon that's coming up in the fall on, you know, September 30th and October 1st. It's um, basically an ep- uh, one-of-a-kind expo celebrating Disney, Marvel, Pixar, theme parks, music, memorabilia. There's an exclusive private after-hours party at Epcot. And, of course, all proceeds benefit Give Kids the World. And, uh, has there been any updates since we talked about this last week, Craig, on who's appearing? No, there has not. Okay, so we know that they're having like a... a 30th anniversary reunion of Aladdin with Jonathan Freeman, the voice of Jafar, and Linda Larkin, the voice of Jasmine, a Phineas and Ferb reunion. I, I love Phineas and Ferb. I haven't watched it in years, but every time I happen to stumble across it, I, I always laugh. I just yeah. find it funny. 
A Bear in the Big Blue House 25th anniversary reunion. And I never really watched Bear in the Big Blue House. So I think my kids might have, but I did not. It was after my time. So I haven't watched it. Yeah. And then um, Tony Baxter and Pat Sajak will be returning and Tom Nabb will be there. And then, and then, um, Brian Collins, we mentioned last week, he was a show writer for Imagineering, including the great movie ride. John August, and he's a screenwriter for, uh, The Corpse Bride, Frankenweenie, and the, um, live action version of Aladdin. And then, I don't know this person, Stacy Aswad, must do Disney host. Yeah, that was the girl who used to be on the, uh, on, the TVs and all of Walt Disney World. Oh, okay. I probably, I always listen to it as background. I never paid much attention to it. And then Shag, the American artist. I have a lot of his shirts. Yes. I think, I don't remember if we did talk about that one last week, but yeah, I'm, I'm super happy with Shag. So yeah, I look forward to that. Yeah. I gave my daughter a few years ago for Christmas, one of his lamps, because she has a couple of black cats and he had this black cat. Um, it was a lamp with a black cat lampshade and all that. A couple of so some of his black cats on the lampshade. I gave it to her as a Christmas gift. That's and a I kept asking. Yeah. <laughs> and I asked her, do you, do you need a second one to match this one? Which she said <laughs> she didn't think so. So that's it. So we hope that we, we see you at um, Discon in there and craig will have a link in our show notes where you can get tickets and find out you know and of course our our agents at dreams unlimited um travel will be happy to um help you book rooms Mm -hmm. there coronado springs or any of the other resorts at um, walt disney world and you know craig we have talked about disney plus and how disappointed we are how did you look at the list of what's coming in april i i did have have they given up yeah. Yeah. I, I, they fully have. And I, I'm not saying that they've given up in terms of new content because clearly, uh, clearly they, you know, Moon Knight is a big event that will but run that's through all the, of like April. The, yeah. Yeah. But, and I'm looking forward to that. I know nothing about Moon Knight. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I, I don't either. And I, it, it's a big thing. And they know most people in April are going to be tuning into that. Which I totally agree with them on it. So that's the big thing. But, uh, you know, it's not about just what new content you're having. They need to continue putting on uh, the archived content. And I, I feel like we say it every single time. Um, and, and they're just, they're just not. Uh, I, I really don't know what's going on. Like, uh, it's no offense. I don't care about a polar bear documentary. I yeah, I watch enough stuff on National Geographic and and such. I don't I don't need now another dedicated movie to polar bears. I I just don't need most of the stuff that they're they're pushing out and it's bumming me out because yeah, I want there, old stuff. And they didn't do a lot. I just feel that it's getting less and less every month. And I know they pulled all that Marvel content from Netflix, but that has been available for years, mm-hmm. just on a different streaming service. So I don't really consider that new content because I was watching some of that, you know, on Netflix yeah. and all that. So, 
The only know. thing I can say is maybe they surprise us and some stuff randomly pops up on there. Uh, that's a little bit more, you know, archived content that they're able to bring back, but they are definitely, you know, going into its whatever it, they've already gone through two and a half years now with it. Um, they're, they're hitting a slump right before, right before getting into the, the final stretch going on, you know, this year with Disney plus. So I, I feel like they've got to do something, something big. And it's great that they have all these movies still upcoming, you know, the Chippendale Rescue Ranger movie coming in the future and a bunch of, a bunch of exclusives and Pinocchio and, and such everything that's already been announced. But, uh, that's, it's also tough when it's one big thing like that and then, you know, maybe a series and then that's it. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it's April. We'll get through April and May. I, I'm assuming May is going to be just as light until you get to the very end, and then you have the premiere of Obi Wan, and then we know we're we're excited about that. And I think the Chippendale movie comes out in May too. But it's just like, where's where's the other little bit? You know, release release one freaking old movie a month that's not currently on there, or some of the Disneyland episodes that have never made it onto Disney plus at this point yet that they already have HD masters of and everything put, put something on there. And it's that surprise that you'd get to discover uh, that isn't just something that's new and flashy. I mean, I there's, there's people out there who want that and Mm -hmm. they're going to eventually abandon the service when they've gone through all of the old content that they, they, have wanted to watch and there's nothing new. So what, what's the point of keeping them on there? And then, you know, they'll sign back up when, when the next big show makes it finally finishes, or if it's one that they have to watch week by week, so they don't get it spoiled, but that's, it's going to what it's going to be what their business model turns into if they don't do something pretty soon with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, they say what people are doing like with HBO Mm -hmm. and stuff. So they have to be, yeah, they have to be careful about that. So I, I'm, I the one that looked really cute to me though is that one about I forget what it's called. It's Nate, uh, better something. Nate than ever, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and that looks cute. Uh, and Lisa Kudrow is in it, and as his aunt, I believe. Him. And I thought, you know, and I guess it's based on a book, and and it's basically about a, a boy. I, I guess he's twelve or thirteen or something, and he wants to be an actor. And I guess he goes for an audition. In the book, I was, I read somewhere, it was the audition for a Broadway musical called E.T. the Musical, which is a hoot. I thought, okay, I would love to see something like that. Cause you know, that would just crash and burn. Mm-hmm. But, um, but of course it's Disney. So they had to change it to Lilo and Stitch the musical. And I thought, it's already a musical. That's not quite, yeah. it doesn't have the humor <laughs> in there. And who's the boy? in it in Lilo and Stitch. So that's I'm not sure. E.T. obviously he's he's going for, you know, the lead in in that one, E.T. the musical, I would think. So um so I thought I might watch that because that looked really funny. And I just keep thinking of that one where um what was it one? The kid that always got in trouble. What was that called? That was, that was, and that was like a couple years ago. And that was like Timmy or Tommy or uh, something. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I know what you're talking about. I, yeah. another one that it was, I never ended up watching. And now it's like, I don't oh. know if I'll ever find the time to go back and watch it. 
it is so good. You've got to watch it. It is really cute. So, um, anyway. And then speaking of Disney films, thought it, there are a few Disney Oscar winners this uh, coming out of the awards. Um, Ariana DeBose, Best Supporting Actress for West Side Story. I think we both talked about how much we enjoyed mm-hmm. West Side Story yep. last time. So it's really, and how cool that Rita Moreno, like, what, 60 years previously had, yeah. had won the Academy Award for the same role. Yeah, that's it's epic. So yeah. uh, definitely, uh, there's only, I believe it was the third time in Oscar history where, uh, where the same character, you know, both actors that played this, the same character won an Oscar for it. So oh, I didn't know a very that. small club. Yeah, I think it was first, it was Brando and De Niro for, um, for Godfather. And then I can't remember what the other one was, but then this one's the third one. So a very, very exclusive club. Yeah. Well, well-deserved. Definitely. Yeah. And then I'm sure you were thrilled that Encanto won best animated film. Nope. <laughs> but <laughs> we can skate past that. Yeah. But I, I am surprised. What were you hoping would win best animated film? Uh, Mitchell's versus the machines. Oh, I still have to watch that. I've heard nothing but good things yeah. about it. it. It was just better all around. Yeah. I, and that's nothing against Encanto. It's just, I, you know, sometimes I, I believe that the best should win and not the most recognizable. But with Encanto, I truly believe that it was more of a, a recognition thing. And that's how it got voted mm-hmm. as best. But it happens. Yeah. I heard that when they did the... um you know, when they performed um, We Don't Talk About Bruno, they changed the lyrics? Yeah, it's they changed it all, and they didn't get the... Uh, they didn't get, like, the original actors to come in and sing some of those parts, too, and instead replaced them with Megan the Stallion and a couple other people. It was, it was a mess. The performance for them touting for as long as they did that, you know, it's the first time it's going to be a live TV appearance, it crashed and burned and it it could have worked at the start of the show but being being in the middle of the show it just it did not work at all so well i I don't know why you would take the film a best nominated um uh song and then change the lyrics for the academy awards if you're going to perform the song, perform the song. Well, it wasn't a nominated for a song, so that was their way of oh, getting that's it right. in it the wasn't. broadcast without, yeah. you know, they wanted it in the broadcast to attract people to it that, hey, you're going to hear this song and it's going to be performed live. Uh, mm. So they had to throw it in, but I, I, I will never understand what they were going for. Maybe yeah, one the, day they'll explain yeah. it. That's right. It was the other song that was nominated in Spanish that yeah. Manuel Miranda wrote that I can't pronounce it. The one about butterflies. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, Cruella won for best costume design. I enjoyed the film, not a fan of rewriting the villains so that they're misunderstood, the poor things. But um, the costumes were out of this world. Yep. In I, the film. I think it was fully deserved. Yeah. And then there are some that I did not see, uh, so I can't really comment on it. Uh, for the best documentary feature, Summer of Soul? I'm not familiar with that. 
Yeah, it's uh you can stream it on Disney Plus and on Hulu. So it's uh it's about the Harlem Music Festival that uh that took place the same year as Woodstock, but all the it basically was forgotten and all of the footage was just sitting in a basement and uh Questlove from the Roots the you know roots are the house band for Jimmy Fallon and uh mm-hmm. you know a band much longer before the tonight show uh but he he directed the documentary and put it all together and uh I'm I'm still only about halfway through it because I wanted to get through all the best pictures first and then I was moving on to the other categories to to fill in gaps but I mean it, it's it's incredible and I mean you're watching a time oh, capsule but uh, you know, I, so I, I, as you went, you're starting to go through these parts. These are what in, even with West Side Story too, I'm happy to call it a Disney one, but we're, we're getting into the, the, the categories that, you know, Disney won because of their purchases that they made. Exactly. <laughs> the next two are their, it's their searchlight. Yeah. Films, but Disney purchased them. So Jessica Chastain, um, best lead actress for the eyes of Tammy Faye. I did not see that, but I heard it was very good and that she was quite good. Yeah. The, the movie's yeah. not perfect. Uh, it's mm-hmm. entertaining for sure. It's, it's not, it's not the, the best movie I've seen, but she disappears into that role. She brings a lot of, a lot of, uh, likability and in reality to, Tammy Faye, uh, something that I wasn't expecting going into it. So only because I, you know, I'm aware of the controversies, uh, surrounding Tammy Faye and Jim Baker, but that was, that was kind of all I knew. So it, it definitely added a different depth. And mm-hmm. then learning that she, like, she bought the rights to the story because she knew that was a dream role that she wanted to play. Like it's, it's a passion project and she, she deserved every little bit of it. And, you know, it's, as you're probably going to go on to say that also that movie won for the, uh, makeup mm-hmm. as well, too, because I mean, they literally transformed her into the yeah. character. Yeah. Yeah, makeup and hair. Yeah. So eyes of Tammy Faye. So I was trying, cause I remember that whole Baker, Baker scandal and how it went down and how their whole little empire just fell apart. So, but anyway, um, I used several resources for this episode for books. I used the Epcot Explorer's Guide, a guide to Walt Disney World's greatest theme parks by R.A. Peterson. Um, some websites and articles, the history of motion part one, Epcot's legendary lost Masterpiece World of Motion and History of Motion Part 2, How the Original Test Track Changed Epcot Forever, The News Wheel, How Epcot's World of Motion Became Test Track, and Walt Disney World WDW Theme Parks, um, their article on Test Track. So um, I also came across a video that was fun. It was the Disney cast member preview video for Test Track. I didn't know they made that kind of stuff. Okay. The cast members. Don't think I knew that either. Yeah, I just happened to trip across it on um, YouTube, so I threw that in there too. It really doesn't say much, but it, it's a fun little period piece. Yeah, that's cool. So, yeah. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on the shows I'm on on the Dis Unplugged Podcast Network. Uh, you can. Always get in touch with me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Teleclaster. And if you need to email me, craig at wdwinfo.com. What about you, Michael? 
You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm michaelbowling-connectingwithwalt. Instagram, michaelbowlingthediz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connectingwalt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. (laughs) 